Hello, and welcome to Green Kick Commentaries. As always, my name is Jake Del Mastro, and I am joined by my very good friend, Keaton Byer. Hello, Keaton. I demand satisfaction. Dude, I was going to make a joke. Oh, shit. Sorry. Okay, no, do <laughs> About it. About satisfaction. Do it anyway. No, no, no. Do it anyway. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Well, now it's weird, but okay, let me <laughs> do it. Okay, so, um, if, uh. If you listened to the first episode and you weren't satisfied, <laughs> well, we're coming back at you with two more episodes about Barry fucking Lyndon. This is part two of three for the first time, as we mentioned last week. And uh, it's uh, it's exciting. Yeah, so hopefully you will have satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, if, it not, if not in part two, at very least by part three. I would hope that you are yeah. at least partially satisfied. So, so if you do not have satisfaction, please get in touch with us and we will do you. That's a horrible thing to put out there onto the <laughs> airwaves because someone will take you up on it. That was satire. He was not serious. We will not. There is no dueling. We do not duel here at Crane Kick Commentaries. We settle things in the court of law <laughs> i don't know and as the standing challenge to uh no I, I, well, who did i challenge to uh nhl 94 oh james Jar- jay barishel jay barishel that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yeah that that you will duel you in, in nhl 94 that is the that is the extent okay. <laughs> that is uh that's what we're willing to do so so uh this episode in lieu of uh uh, uh describing the film in 30 minutes like we did last week let's describe what we talked about last week just a little bit and then we can go into what we're talking about this week and then uh then we'll get into it because there's a lot of stuff to talk about yeah so just to uh refresh your memory last week we talked a bit about what the movie's all about we talked about sort of uh who is stanley kubrick uh where uh who is he uh the director of the film, and sort of our thoughts on the movie to begin with. And then we sort of went a little bit through Kubrick's uh, early film history, stopping shortly before this movie. Yes, we learned a little bit about his, about his eccentricities. And then... Um, oh, we talked about Star Trek as well, which we... Of course, do. of course. But we're, we're going to address those eccentricities a little bit more in this episode. So this week, um, we're going to talk about Stan, the man, a little bit more. Um, as we said last week, it was a bit more of a biography-focused yeah. uh, coverage. We're going to talk about this, uh, his reputation a bit, and then we'll jump back into kind of the early uh, uh, pre-production yeah. period. Yeah, to many, he is sort of an enigma, I would say. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's sort of shrouded in mystery, and uh, we'll hopefully attempt to... Clear some of it up. Some of it, yeah. Sort of. I mean, you, I, I listened to some of it, but you listened to several hours of, of interviews with the man himself. Yeah, um, which, to be clear, are not necessarily, should not necessarily be considered a reliable source. No, exactly. I mean, he's, that's the thing. <laughs> People <laughs> talking about themselves is rarely a, like, fully reliable I source. I mean, in one sense, it's incredibly reliable. But in another sense, it's completely not. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think both are very true in, in those interviews. Yeah. And I, I also watched, you know, 
a bunch of interviews with other people talking about him and read some things and you know in the past yeah. i've heard other things but we're gonna try and kind of amalgamate it all here and talk a bit more about his his reputation which is specifically that he was difficult to work with to put it lightly. yeah so i've heard some varying things on yeah. this <laughs> and so what my best like sort of appraisal of what the situation is is that it very much depends on who you are <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would totally agree with that appraisal i think that if you uh how should I say this? Uh, if you meet eye to eye with Stanley, if you met eye to eye with Stanley, I think you guys, I think they would, people generally got along and got along really well and enjoyed the experience a lot. However, if you didn't, you were either like fired, yeah, <laughs> or you either fired or did you, not enjoy the yeah, or the if you experience. stuck it through, your experience was pretty unfortunate. Yeah, <laughs> it seems. <laughs> but that is that is the thing, and that's an interesting like point yeah. about him and it's kind of like like what did uh i was watching a uh 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 kirk douglas what did he say on it was an interview on his hundredth birthday they did an interview with him and they asked him about stanley kubrick and he said uh he was a bastard but he was but he was brilliant or something like that yeah this is i think that that's a really interesting perspective on that on how he was to work with because a lot of people who worked with him later is that Stanley was already like established. Exactly. Like, yeah, that that's the thing is a lot of his reputation is enigmatic comes from kind of the later years, but no, no, but also like, you know, it was, it was, uh, a lot of the situation is it was a situation where Stanley was in charge where a lot of people have the experience, but this right. is different because it was a situation where Kirk, Kirk Douglas, Douglas was, was in charge. That's true. It is a very, <laughs> yeah. a very, <laughs> That's a good a very point. different dynamic, I think. He's got he's one of the few people to ever be in charge of Stanley really in a film. In fact, he might yep. be the only person other than like executives, but I mean they were only in charge financially. Yeah, it, it was more of a more of a deal than a yeah. <laughs> like a, Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, the the other example of that um of that dynamic didn't happen and the movie never got made. I'm talking about the uh, the Marlon Brando. Uh, oh yeah, we the thing we forgot yeah, to mention last movie. week, um, which I think we forgot to mention last week. Yeah, but, let's um, we could briefly touch on it now. <laughs> so Kubrick was supposed to make a, a western film. I think it was like One Eye Jack or something. It was called One Eye Jacks. Uh, but so this movie did get made, but not with Stanley. <laughs> yeah, not with Stanley. It was a it's a Marlon Brando western. If you're not familiar with it. I don't think I've actually seen it. If I no, have, I don't it think was I have either. Years ago, essentially, it was supposed to be directed by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, and it was supposed to star Marlon Brando. And this was Marlon Brando's project, right? And well, so when it came out, it was directed by Marlon Brando <laughs> and starring Marlon Brando. <laughs> so according according to Stanley, he had put I think several months of work into this movie. At which point, he decided that it. He couldn't work on it anymore. That's so funny that Marlon Brando found the only director better than Stanley Kubrick. Marlon Brando. (laughs) (laughs) But so, like, uh, I don't know if Kubrick was fired or if or if he left on his own accord. But from what I gathered, the two of them did not get along. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's some 
there were some personality clashes from what I gathered from reading about that. Yeah, and also from what I gathered, that's not an uncommon situation with Marlon Brando. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically every story I've ever heard about Marlon Brando is that like he was impossible to be around. Yeah. Like what you were saying about like there they have like they're both huge personalities. And the thing about Like I think Yeah, sorry, go on. I was just going to say the thing about huge personalities is like kind of the same thing we were saying earlier about Stanley in general is like they either if they see eye to eye they can work pretty well together but if you're not on the same page it's explosive (laughs) rough yeah exactly so but yeah you you were saying that uh kirk douglas called him a bastard he called him a bastard yeah i think that that uh that 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 is to a point accurate that is to a point accurate like you were saying like so on the one hand, we were saying people got along with him, but the 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 the, the most uh, uh, extreme version of the opposite case, like the other hand, uh, he could could be abusive. Like it's hard to say. This is a, a a complicated story from a lot of ways, but the 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 best example is she- the Shelley Duvall story, which um, we've mentioned yeah. before. But we'll talk about that a bit in a second. I just want to, there's like three, okay, so we'll, three we'll major things quite, yeah, I kind of want to go through just talking about Stanley is like yeah. his, his, the, the three things are his, um, uh, a penchant for many takes or his reputation for taking a lot of takes. The second one yeah. is, uh, people calling him a perfectionist and the idea of perfectionism. And the third one is the idea of Shelley Duvall. So let's start with the takes. Um, okay. I, and I do actually think that all three of these things are kind of, intimately related <laughs> they are totally exactly i think that the, they go well together i think um but yeah stan was infamous for taking if you're not familiar he was infamous for taking dozens of takes endlessly till he got them uh, uh right quote unquote right i think yeah i think so so this is this is undoubtedly true he did do a lot of takes yeah <laughs> yeah so murray melvin uh we should, uh, so Murray Melvin is in this film, Barry Lyndon, and he plays uh, the Reverend. I don't remember the what's it, Reverend Reverend Samuel Reverend Runt Reverend Runt, who who looks perfect for a role in this film. His look is is spot on. He's got a great face for yeah, really. For that um, role. So he had a scene in this film. Is it the scene where he's getting fired? Yeah, it's the scene. Yeah, exactly the scene at the because he, he kind of. Yeah, it wasn't quite clear to me from the way he was describing it which scene exactly. I think he, he says at meaning. the beginning it's because it's a scene with him and the the actress who plays Barry Lyndon's mom. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I thought it was that scene. So basically, um, he has to do this scene, and he keeps stumbling over the words "her house" instead of saying like, "I don't, I don't know." I'm, her house. I probably can't do it. her house or something like that, but. Um, and so Stanley, Stanley really needed to make sure that it was her house. And so eventually he got it, uh, and then Stan, and then he did something that Stanley liked or whatever, and then Stanley said, okay, do that again, right? Yeah. And then they just kept going on like this for uh, how much, 70, uh, 70? Well, he said initially they did 57 takes. Sorry, 57 takes, yeah, yeah. It was just a long speech about my outrage about how she was treating Lady Lyndon. And (laughs) on the first few takes, 
I stumbled the lines because I hadn't, I hadn't had them very long from Stanley, about a week, and I, st I still hadn't got them. And I missed the two words in her house. And on the, because of the nerves, I kept saying her house. I, I didn't get the double H, her house. I didn't separate. And so, on and on. And then I gradually got it, about take 20. And then Stanley decided that perhaps I'd done something that he liked. And so he'd change it. And so I incorporated the change and he carried on. And we were to take 56, 57. And after the 57th, I went, oh, Stanley. What's the matter, Murray? I said, 57 takes? Why, what's the matter, Murray? Do you want a break? Do you want a break? I said, um, Yes, please. Go and get some coffee. We have, we have a break. And so I said to him, now, Stanley, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? Nothing, Murray. Nothing. So I said, well, are we going to do more? Said, yeah, have a cup of coffee. So when I had a cup of coffee, had a 10 minute break. Okay, back. And what he did was, Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know. So we're standing, we're standing by, the cap boy comes up, and what Stanley had done was change the slate number, so we went back to take one. We didn't do the old slate number, take 60, we did a new take number, slate number, take one. And of course, I burst out laughing. So of course, we're on to take two. And I think I did 20 more takes. And at the end, he said to me, Murray, I think I've got enough. And John Alcott, standing by the side of the camera, said to me, and Murray, I bet he uses take three. <laughs> The, like the way he told the story, it seemed like Kubrick like was surprised that he wanted a break. Yeah, like <laughs> I think it kind of it, it's a it's a trend that's going to come back. Is his ability to like sympathize or empathize? Yeah, well, with his actors. Yeah, I kind of think he has the sense that like everybody has like the same approach that he does. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But like, um, you gotta wonder why did he do seventy, seventy odd somewhat takes, right? Yeah. Like, what what is he looking for? What was he actually looking for? And I, what I've heard that Stanley has said about this kind of makes me see the reason why he did so many takes. Yeah. And basically, what I think you, you <laughs> is that while Stanley is considered to be like one of the greatest directors of all time, uh. He's not exactly an actor's director. No, of course, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Uh, it, it's not exactly something, uh, it would not appear that, that giving directions is something that he excels at. But anyway, so uh, what 
some quotes that Stanley has said that that sort of point me towards this is that he ha- he has said, "I don't know what I want, but I definitely know what I don't want." <laughs> and this is this is something that several actors have. Uh, yeah, which it's funny that that sticks out to actors. Yeah. So, so like apparently, like he would instead of actually being able to say like, "Oh, this is what I want." He would just do it over and over again. Yeah. Until he got the bit of the performance yeah. that he was looking for, I guess, that he had in his head, I guess. But uh, he also said, I don't do a lot of takes when it's good. <laughs> savage. Oh, <laughs> my sad. God. That is so savage. I think Stanley, like, might have been on the spectrum. That's highly possible. <laughs> uh, another quote, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that... Um, Several actors have asked Kubrick, like, what do you want me to do differently? And then he has said, well, you're the actor. Oh, come on. You decide what to do. No, Stanley. That's horrible. <laughs> I know. That's horrible direction. But I, I know. So, but that's it, it, another thing it gets into, like, if you're the right kind of guy... You tend to thrive in that atmosphere, but if you're not... Yeah. Like, if you're Jack Nicholson, this is the exact thing you want to hear. Exactly, that's why, yeah. But if you need more solid direction, then, yeah, Yeah. you're going to have some trouble. So, yeah, a lot of actors have said that he's, like, he's given them, like, a lot of, like, freedom to do what they want to do, but also a lot of actors have said, like... Uh, like basically, like they have um, no idea what the fuck to do. They have no idea what to do. He's like, well, I think, I think he he must get just so enveloped in the story that, and like that he's it's so clear to him what they should be doing, that the fact that yeah. they aren't as enveloped is like doesn't cross his mind almost. Yeah, uh, actually, there's there's another quote uh, that I have from Matthew Modine, who was the star of uh, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, he described Stanley as like a French bulldog with a ball. <laughs> and what does this mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, so he said basically, like, it's like taking a, a little dog and putting a ball in front of him. He, he can just stay so focused on that ball. <laughs> just spend hours. Just staring at That's the... an interesting comparison. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, like, basically saying, like, he gets so into... He gets obsessed, yeah. He, 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 yeah, he, uh, he kind of, like, forgets about everything else, I think. Yeah, the rest of the world starts to fall away, and I think... Also, another thing that, from Matthew Modine, actually, is, uh, during one of the shots on Full Metal Jacket, actually, um... His wife went into labor. Oh no! <laughs> I can I can imagine where this to, is going. Had to have an emergency C-section. Oh jeez! And so he goes to Stanley and says, "Stanley, uh, I have to go. My wife is having a baby." And then he's like, "Well, we 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 still have to finish the day. I mean, the doctors won't need you there." yet like they they, oh they will need you till later you'll just be in the way like, like, oh my god stanley <laughs> yeah he had he seemed to have no uh, awareness that people could not be as into his work as he was yeah and so eventually like it got to the point where uh where he was like 
I swear, Stanley, I will cut my hand so that I cannot do the rest of the scene. Oh my god. <laughs> if you don't let me go. That, it didn't come down to that. No, I'm sure luckily. it wouldn't have. But the fact that it had to come down to him being like, look, Stanley. <laughs> despite what you might think, this is important to me. Yeah. And the funniest thing is that everything that Matthew Modine has said about making that movie is all so positive. Yeah, it's true. It is true. It's like, seems like he loved the experience, but somehow, like... He's a bit strange, though, from what I've gathered. But yeah, he did a lot of takes. He did a lot of takes. Um, The the longest one, I think he has the Guinness Book of World Record for for most takes, was the... Uh, the the baseball bat scene from The Shining took 127 takes, which is Jeez. unbelievable. He actually okay. One more thing about this because it's another thing that he said about why he he thinks that he does a lot of takes, and it it has to do with with it has to do with lines. With lines. Apparently, so so Stanley's standard for what knowing your lines means is apparently much higher. Than most people. Interesting. Like, in the sense that, I guess, you have to know more of your lines? No, no. According to Stanley, knowing your lines means you don't have to think about your lines. Oh, no. That, well, uh, Stanley, why can't everybody else do their job as well as mine? Because I do mine. I know. But, so, he was saying, like, apparently, uh, he, he said that there was a tendency... For, for British actors to do what he thought was a better job at knowing their lines because the school of acting in Britain apparently starts with the words and then goes into the character as opposed to the American school, which is the reverse. Right. That's kind of interesting. I'd like to explore that yeah. idea more at some point. That's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, so he had a very high standard for what it meant to know your lines. He really liked the English, huh? It, it, like... <laughs> Interesting. I mean, well, he 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 must have liked them enough because he lived there. Yeah. But like, um, interestingly enough, there were some other things in that video that um, would point to the fact that maybe that that is not necessarily the case. Yeah, I guess I guess he was kind of just there to avoid America more than he was there. Actually, he... that that's not how he described it. But we'll talk about that later. Okay. Okay. Yeah. As I said, Jake's listened to. Like the, all the hours. Once of the again, Kubrick. this is how he described it. So I, I, I don't know. Once again, how accurate everything is. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, how more accurate on his experience can you be than his words? <laughs> I guess. I guess. Well, you can't know, really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, a lot of people would say that somebody who uh, who does a lot of takes and tries to get tries to get it right for sure. What what would you call that kind of person? Um. A maniac. <laughs> it's not the word I was going for, but a perfectionist, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's what you might call them. But I think Stanley might have actually preferred the term maniac. I'm sure he would have actually preferred the term maniac. <laughs> yeah. He really hated the term perfectionism, didn't he? Because it was applied to him a lot. Yeah. It was used to describe him like quite often. So clearly, he had an opinion on it. Yeah. So. In his own words, he says, 
perfectionism is a convenient journalistic slant used to get at me <laughs> comma if you try to do something you try to do it as well as possible <laughs> yeah. i do not i don't waste money and i don't waste time but i try to get it right my films don't cost a lot and they've all been f- successful no company has ever been hurt by any of them and some of them have made a lot of money uh, that last bit is kind of a good point if it's totally true. I don't know if it's entirely true. I have to look into it. What, that his films don't cost a lot of money? No, that his film, that no company has ever been hurt by any of them. Because I think oh, Clockwork Orange, you could make an argument that it was a bit damaging in the UK. I but, don't actually, uh, yeah, I don't know what the... Uh, but again, I'd have to I'd have yeah. to look into that. But that last bit is big if yeah. true. But like he doesn't, he's t- the argument that you could say he wastes time and money, but I, I guess it's not wasted if his films... Are successful successful and good and good yeah exactly <laughs> like i think like once again like there's no there's no way to argue with like his movies are fucking great oh, they're fantastic I mean, I mean, yeah you can, ar- you can argue with it oh but, i'm sure like, you could and tons uh, of people do i'm sure there may have been a way to do this with a little less <laughs> um how do you say a little bit less of an arduous process may have been possible. Yeah, I think he definitely made things harder than they needed to be in a lot of ways because of his process. Um, but yeah. how you can separate his process from his product is a bit... That's a bit I difficult. mean, once again, it's hard to say. Like, if a different person did it a different way, it would have turned out of different, Of course. Right? Um, the more I learn about... Like, the more I've learned about Stanley Kubrick over these last... The, the last couple of weeks we've been looking into this because I didn't really know very much about Stanley before this this series here. Like, I knew a bit, and like we've talked about him before. Right. But like, I mean, mostly just from his films. Exactly. Right? But honestly, the more I learn about his process, the less I, I would call him a perfectionist. No, I know exactly. The, like the farther away from that it, it gets. <laughs> yeah. He's trying, as he said, he is trying to do. He's trying to do it well. Um, Let me kind of you know wade in a little bit here yes and speculate oh fuck yeah but um why i think he had such a problem with this term <laughs> uh-huh. is because i think that there there is some stuff that made it into the movies that he was probably really unhappy <laughs> with <laughs> yeah you're probably right and and how can you call yourself a perfectionist is his is his process is what I think he's thinking if I allowed this to happen. Yeah. Clearly I'm not a perfectionist. My product then, isn't right? perfect, so therefore I am not a perfectionist. <laughs> I allowed this to happen, you know what I mean? Obviously there are certain things that he didn't do for reasons of like budgetary or time limitations, yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. And actually, well, I mean, we're going to talk about that later. Sweet. <laughs> Clearly, you can't really call him a perfectionist. Like, for example, there's actually one scene in Barry Lyndon where you see a light in the shot. What? Yeah. Are you serious? I'm serious. I'm fucking serious. In a Stanley Kubrick film? There is a light in the shot. What shot is it? That's insane. It's it's really subtle and it shows up for like a frame. <laughs> like, it's there. It's there. If you freeze frame there, you can see it. Somebody found it. Another example I could think of from 2001: A Space Odyssey, where this is this is a really famous goof I think because it's something that that he caught while he was in editing, 
and he tried to fix it. Oh, right. <laughs> so what happens is that in 2001 A Space Odyssey, there's a scene where uh, they're talking to the Russian scientists. Yeah. And so um, uh, there's this woman who's a Russian scientist, and she has a blue sweater next to her, like on her chair or whatever. Yeah. And and then I think in the Y shot, or like when it changes shots, I I, I can't remember the exact scene in my head, but anyway, when, it, when they show it from a different angle, that blue sweater's gone. <laughs> oh no, that would drive me crazy too. So uh, actually, interesting thing about this scene is that uh, Captain John Quinn is one of the scientists. <laughs> oh yeah, he's that's fine. That's that's right. But anyway, anyway, uh yeah, so what was I going to say? Um so he dubbed in like as if it was coming from the intercom uh a blue sweater has been found. Oh my god. <laughs> that is insanity. Because clearly he couldn't let that go, right? Oh. <laughs> but just imagine if you were Stanley, how nuts that would drive yeah, you. Yeah, that, like, that would drive me nuts as me. So I can only imagine as Stanley yeah, yeah. how nuts. Like, he was probably up for He's, days. Clearly I am not a perfectionist. This is in the movie. <laughs> like, yeah, perfectionism is a bad word for that. Yeah, so apparently also on Full Metal Jacket, one of the actors was saying... He was really enjoying this experience, and he's like, uh, "I think Stanley's a genius or whatever. He's 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 such a perfectionist." Oh no! And Stanley heard this, and he asked uh, the actor to come to his trailer or whatever. Oh no! <laughs> Which is, I think, if Stanley Kubrick asks you to come to your trailer, that's not a good come to his trailer. That's not a good. That's thing. not a good thing. It's like going to the principal's <laughs> office. <laughs> And he says, let me get this straight. I'm not a perfectionist. <gasps> and then he, I assume he like goes into this quote. <laughs> not this quote, but I think he was offended at the idea that he was wasting money or wasting time. Yeah, that's what it seems to be. Yeah, exactly. He was more offended at that notion <laughs> um, than anything yeah. else. Um, because, I mean, clearly, I think Stanley spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make the most of his time and money. Yeah, exactly. I think he did. There must be 20 guineas in gold here, Father. Well, well, well. You seem to be a very well set up young gentleman, sir. Um, so should we move on to Shelley Duvall here? The final, yeah, the final so, uh, bit this, here of this. Yeah, so this is like, this is a really, I think, a, uh, an interesting story um i'm not i'm not sure <laughs> it's certainly a story of stanley being a jackass like being an asshole <laughs> like, yeah from what i gathered it seems like kubrick himself was extremely cold to her and like basically ignored mm -hmm. her the whole time and and you can see that in the behind the scenes footage, in the just like how he like yeah yeah there's a there is a there is a behind the scenes movie yeah that has a lot of the, the shots from Kubrick and uh, Shelley interacting and some interviews with, with Shelley Duvall as well. Mm -hmm. But apparently he also like instructed everyone on the crew not to like give her encouragement and stuff and to also be like cold to her. He like wanted... Yeah, so what I'm wondering about this is like, was he like trying to do like a thing to like... Was he trying to like elicit something from her like... Yeah, I don't like, know. Did he think this was gonna help her performance? Like, was that the idea? I mean, I, that's what I think the intention yeah. in the rumor is is supposed to be. What it actually was, what he's trying to do, who the fuck knows, right? 
Um, yeah, I know. In exactly. his mind, uh, he could be doing any one of a billion things that we'd never be able to understand. Yeah. Not necessarily in he's a genius way, just in a he's a... a no, no. I mean, like, clearly, like, this seems to have been unwarranted. Like, yeah. That's what... That's the, I mean, that's what it seems like. He, he Somebody said she was treated as if she, like, wasn't there. Yeah. And she was, like, kept in the dark about a lot of stuff. Like, like the axe scene, for example, is apparently she didn't know that the axe was going to be swung through the door while she was in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that makes me kind of think, like, he was trying to do a like thing. Like, he was trying to get right, to the try best to, like, fear out of her. Was, yeah, exactly. Which maybe he was. Maybe he was. Which is, I don't know. It's, I think that's a stupid way to make a... Yeah, no, there are so many other ways to do this. And, I mean, that's what I think that... From what I saw about her talking about it at the time is that it seems that that's how she saw it. She like yeah. saw it that he was trying to get the fear out, right? Yeah, he was, and and she specifically said like um, he, uh, you know, we both had the same end in mind, but you know, uh, I don't think that we had to go through all this, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and I and I mean, like, just want to say, like, her performance in that movie is just spectacular I think it's, yeah really like, good seriously I think it's really good i think she does an amazing job in that movie i mean it it, it just kind of sucks to know that like it that that all happened yeah, right she like suffered through it so much and it all kind of does stick in the craw a little bit when you compare it to how jack nicholson experienced that set yeah like him and him and like stanley kubrick were best of friends as we've like mentioned they got along swimmingly yeah I, like jack nicholson is possibly like the perfect actor to put into that system, exactly exactly and he fit in perfectly and him and stanley played chess all the time and like we're yeah we're good friends and i think i think a huge part of this is just misogyny and sexism like you know it was the mm-hmm. 70s that's the film industry as we've explored has always been an extremely mm-hmm. sexist place but yeah i mean this is like this is kind of all a side tangent aside from the film that we're talking about today, Barry yeah. Lyndon. This is all just about kind of, I think, as we were, as we said last week, I think uh, his reputation, his biography is so wrapped into the, his films, and they exist in such a continuum yeah. that it's like it's. I think it's important to look at it uh, with his reputation in mind. But yeah, so but I I I think I think what we've kind of like hit at here. Is that like, despite his sort of reputation as like being a perfectionist, it seems that like the behind the scenes were far chaotic. more chaotic, exactly. at least, than like th- throughout basically everything we talked. It seems like the behind the scenes could have could be very chaotic, despite what ended up on screen being so ordered. So yeah, and I think not perfect. <laughs> But very well put yeah. together, you know what I mean? Where his perfect process met imperfect reality. <laughs> anyway, this kind of tie we'll 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 put this all uh on the back burner for now. Keep all this yeah. stuff in your head as we talk about everything else for the for the rest of this episode and very much for the next episode. Because yeah. we're going to switch gears now to the production, pre-production um, portion of yeah. the film. But yeah, it's good to know all this stuff about his reputation. In terms of his production, pre-production, I think the line is 
blurred more so than it is in a lot of cases. Like when his production actually kind of starts, if you know what I mean. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, like for a Stanley Kubrick movie, like <laughs> you could spend three years in pre-production and then two years shooting the movie. Yeah, ex- right? exactly. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what happened. I mean, they only shot spent shot for one year, but but yeah, well, we yeah. as we said. So last week we talked a bit about Napoleon. <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, the the normal. You know, Napoleon didn't have a French accent. Oh yeah, right? that's right. Because he was uh, he wasn't. He was of course yeah. a guy. <laughs> I wasn't. That wasn't me doing a Napoleon accent. Why would he be saying his own name? That was me doing a Frenchman saying yeah, exactly. his name. Um, exactly. Yes. Exactly. So <laughs> interesting fact is that Napoleon's accent would have sounded closer to modern day Italian. <laughs> Mamma mia, it's a me and Napoleon. Um, but I think we should just, well, let's go through the Napoleon film again in a little bit more detail and talk about it a bit more because okay, so, we didn't talk about it in a lot of detail last last week. Yeah, so we basically said Napoleon was, sorry, Napoleon basically <laughs> said Stanley. <laughs> I'm not the first person to make a comparison between the two. Is Stanley one of them? <laughs> no, I I don't think so. Like, um, but like like we were saying, apparently like a lot of the press, like a lot of the um, I, I shouldn't say a lot of the press like thought this to be true, but like a lot of the things that Stanley read that he didn't like <laughs> was that it was being said that he was obsessed with Napoleon. <laughs> Which, in one sense, is true because he was trying to make a movie about him. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was obsessed with Napoleon. Yeah. But, like, I think the, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know really how to put it, but, like. <laughs> I mean, he's obsessed with. <laughs> like, in order to make a movie like that, yeah, you have to be in obsessed order to with be Stanley Napoleon. Kubrick, to make a Stanley Kubrick film about Napoleon, yeah, you have to be obsessed with Napoleon. I think. Yeah. But I wouldn't say, like, as a matter of course, he was just obsessed no, with he Napoleon. he was already obsessed with Napoleon. I think he became yeah, exactly. obsessed with Napoleon in the process of making a Napoleon yeah, film. In order to make this yeah, movie. And I think that's how he worked with everything, though. Like, he became obsessed with blank yeah. to do whatever. You know, that's kind of. That exactly. was his process. And that's how we got what we saw. Exactly. In terms of obsession, he, he watched every Napoleon film that yeah. was ever made. And thought that they were all bad. <laughs> yeah, he said they were they all sucked. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons he wanted to make a Napoleon film. Um, yeah, exactly. And he read, I assume, dozens of. It didn't say specifically how many books. He, he became an expert on the 18th century. Um but we'll talk about that a bit more during the production, the degree yeah. to which he became an expert, because it applies there, too. Um, it applies? Yeah. We're having a really tough time separating a lot of this stuff. Well, that's, I think... Yeah, that that's kind of what you mentioned, like, because the pre-production is so heavily kind of a part of a Stanley Kubrick film, that it's like... It really bleeds together. Um, yeah. This this period, like technically, like this is before Clockwork Orange. What we're talking about, you know? Yeah, it was before and after. <laughs> and after <laughs> and after, yeah. Um, yeah. So this is great uh, that he wrote in his personal notes. Um, Napoleon would be uh, quote unquote the best movie ever made. I don't. 
like, did he mean, like, his Napoleon, or is this idea of Napoleon that he had in his head? Like, is he saying, like, I am going to make the greatest movie ever, or is he saying a movie about Napoleon would be the best movie ever? It, it, it was more about the scope of the film than it was about right, the quality, okay. I think, because right. this was going to be his biggest movie yet, and I think we talked about it a bit last week when we talked about Napoleon, um, yeah, because he wanted to follow up 2001, and he wanted yeah, he didn't, and that's all. That's a really hard act to follow. Yeah, and he didn't want that to be his defining movie, so he wanted to make an an epic. Um, and yeah, and, and once again, this is this is I think getting into his head a little much, but still, that's what we do. That's what we. That's been what we doing. do on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, as we know, this film was not made. No, why wasn't it made? For a couple of reasons. The first reason is that a film came out called Waterloo. Yeah. Uh, which was based on Napoleon. You don't say. Yeah, and I don't. Stanley, I assume, thought it sucked. I don't know about that. Yeah, but I mean, more importantly, it was a huge commercial failure. It was a huge flop. Yeah, it, and that made uh, his studio, I believe, it was still it was Warner Bros. Yeah, sweat a little. They bit. They were antsy about it. Yeah, they didn't like that Waterloo flopped, and then on top of that, you've got Stanley Kubrick like making deals with the Romanian army for like 400,000 yeah. soldiers and they're like pulling yeah. their collars of it being like how much is this going to cost Stanley Yeah and and as Stanley so so much likes to point out his films don't cost a lot of money generally generally <laughs> but th- this one was looking to be pretty expensive for the time so they pulled the plug on it Yeah and he uh wait did they pull the plug Yeah okay Okay, because it, it wasn't clear to me whether or not Stanley just gave up or if he... No, it seems to or me... Or if that it was the studio that basically just pulled the funding. They pulled the funding. It wasn't... It, it may have been a scenario where, like, like, they gave him an ultimatum, like, you can't... Or you can't make this movie with us. Or, yeah, that, or you need to do it in this budget or you can't make the film. And he yeah. was like, I'm not going to make the film. Yeah. I don't know. Again, right. speculating, yeah. but the point yeah. is... That uh, I believe, I believe they pulled the plug. Right. But yeah, that's what I was gonna ask. I, I don't know if you know this. Um, what, do you know if the plug was pulled before or after Clockwork Orange? Was it before? After. After. I believe I'm. That's not a. That's not a hundred percent necessarily verified. But I believe that that he was working on Napoleon. Then he did Clockwork Orange. And then we went back to Napoleon. Right. Gotcha. Because wait, because I I think I read somewhere that. He was going to start filming in, like, the early 70s. Oh, right, so... And Clock Orange was, what, 1971 or 71, something? I think. Maybe 72. No, later than yeah. 72. I think it was yeah. Uh, anyway, I believe they were going to start filming after Clock Orange, but don't quote me on that. Gotcha. So, obviously, this, is, this, is, this film, there's a reason we're talking about it now. For It's important for Barry Lyndon, because we're talking about Barry Lyndon. And, yeah, so... I think what kind of happened here was like, you know, Stanley had put so much work into this. He wasn't willing to just, you know, let it all go. He wanted to just float off into the night. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he thought, oh, you know, what if I uh, what if I make a film, you know, with a very similar setting? Because he had done massive amounts of research on costumes uh matt yeah like we said all those books that he had been reading they weren't just about napoleon right they're about and and 
from what I understand too, he hadn't just done research on costumes, but they'd actually made some. Yeah. Well, like, because they were they were pretty close to production, like with this. They were yeah, pretty close. It sounds yeah. Like they had spent money and things. Was, uh, yeah. Like it was it was it, they were far into this this project. Um, yeah, they scouted like locations. They like they'd done a whole shit ton of shit. Ton of shit, yeah. So yeah, he like. Where did this idea come from? Where did Barry Lyndon come from? I think we've kind of got to that point here. Um, yeah, it took us long enough. It took us <laughs> fucking long enough. Yeah, like honestly, how many hours into this? <laughs> yeah, we've made it to Barry Lyndon. So Barry Lyndon is. A uh, a novel. It's based on a novel by William Makepeace Thackeray, uh, who you may or may not know is the author of the famous novel Vanity Fair. Thackeray or Thackeray? I think it's Thackeray. I've spelt it differently, actually, a couple of times I've noticed here. The luck of Barry Lyndon. It's Thackeray. R-A-Y. Oh, it's Thackeray, yeah. The point of all this, though, is that Kubrick, for a while, had considered doing a, a Vanity Fair as a film, but he ditched this idea for two reasons. Firstly, the, the first reason was because there was an adaptation made, I think, in, like, 1970? Like, a be- like it was, like, a short... It wasn't a movie, but it was, like, a, 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 a miniseries or something. Mm-hmm. And then, secondly, because he said the story was too broad to like be whittled down into a feature-length film, like. <laughs> Interesting, you say that, Stanley. Yeah. <laughs> you almost failed here. You came pretty darn close. I mean, three hours, I think, is is. F- no, I mean it's 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 re- it's it, it's acceptable. Like it's it's, it's acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say he almost didn't succeed, but yeah. he did. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about his process of of choosing subjects for films. Yeah, so so he liked to read a lot, like and a shit ton, like almost all of his yeah. free time. It seems, which God knows how he had any of that. But not only did he read, because he didn't have enough time. No, as I was saying. He hired <laughs> several people to simply read books and essentially write down a summary of them and send them to him to tell him if he thought that they were interesting. Man, you would loved Wikipedia. I know, man. If um, if Stanley was like, if if Stanley had access to the internet, oh, uh, if he if he would have loved, which Google. I can only presume he did, he did near the end of his life. Uh, yeah, it's true because they overlapped as, as, very actually, slightly. In 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 one of the interviews I was listening to, I just thought it was really funny because he was talking about computers. Oh yeah, he would have loved them. And so so in 1987, he's like talking to this this uh, interviewer, and he's like, "Are, are you are you a computer man?" I just got the uh, the the compact compact two the compact two eighty six. You know, I uh, I use uh, I use word processing, and and I, I do I do, I use spreadsheet. It's it's quite tremendous. <laughs> it's, it's like, like, yeah, yeah, spreadsheet. Yeah, that, I can see why you would like that, Stanley. <laughs> like, Let me tell you about fact, Excel, like, Stanley. That's that's I've got a fucking. I'm program sure Stanley to you you. like fucking learn like learn the shit out of Excel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh sure he fucking loved God, it. God, like, yes. 
<laughs> Look at all the things I can neatly organize and calculate. Oh, he would have loved it so much. He clearly did. Yeah. It was tremendous. It was. Oh, it's tremendous. Yeah, he would have loved Wikipedia. He would have loved Google. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, yeah. like when we, we I don't know if we're talking about Archive.org. Uh, all these like... things, yeah. Because his, uh, like those memos that he wrote in that documentary, like the yeah. boxes, all the memos that he would he would yeah. write, those are just Google queries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like he, I, Can you go find out this? Like find out the barometric pressure uh, on this day, date. Yeah. Oh, no, no, you just Google that shit. Yeah, just Google you that shit. That. No problem. Like, yeah. maybe he wouldn't have gotten anything done, actually. Because he would just spend his entire time Googling Yeah, he would have just Googled shit, shit all the time. <laughs> I mean, somehow he he's managed to avoid spending his entire time using spreadsheets. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Maybe he didn't. But anyway, uh, back to our our uh, our story here. So he's got the luck of Barry Lyndon, um, which we mentioned was uh, written by the Thackeray. It's originally published in 1844, uh, but the time period obviously is earlier. Um, it tells the first person account of the Irish rogue Redmond Barry. I thought that was an interesting. Change. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I mean, because in the film, the uh, the film is narrated by just a omni omni present Om- omni- like, omniscient omnis- omniscient narrator. Yeah, um, which is an interesting choice. And because uh, in the book, although we do follow like Barry's perspective, but still, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, it's we definitely don't hear, we definitely don't hear the story through Barry. No, no, or Redmond exactly. And I think, I think, in the book, he's supposed to be an unreliable narrator. Yeah, which I, mean, I from his character, from his character, yeah, you can gather like that it. much. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, and it's it's more or less the same, generally. Yeah, generally, uh, but the end. Yeah, I mean, Stanley. If you, if you look at like every one of Stanley's films that are adaptations of books, like they almost invariably have like a uh, major difference from the source material. Yeah. Are all his films adapted from books? Uh, because two thousand one was. I don't think. No, two thousand one was not adapted from a book. Actually, it was based loosely on the Sentinel, though, wasn't it? Or no, it was like written concurrently not, or something. No, because like I that. read the. I yeah, I read the Sentinel. Uh, actually, because it's a really short story, you could actually read it. Uh, I had I actually had time to read it. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. <laughs> uh, but no, the Sentinel's actually like it's the, it's it's sort of in spot like the. I think he he. Uh, it's like the Sentinel, like the short story what... for they live, like six pages. You mean like that sort of thing, like where it's like a broad yeah, idea, exactly. but it's not. But I think that that's what what brought him to talk to uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, who's the author? Yeah. Um, but so what he did was that he and Arthur C. Clarke wrote a screenplay, <laughs> and Arthur C. Clarke also wrote a book. Right. So it's like time. concurrent. Yes. Right. So technically, it's not based on a book. Technically not. It is. It is a book and a movie. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Which are not based on each other. They. Yeah. They are. One in the same, kind of. It's so weird. So anyway, yes, many of Stanley's movies, nearly all of them, are based on books. Yes, which is interesting, I think. Uh, cause he, yes, he liked... however, 
he almost invariably changed something major. Yeah, he always, like, yeah, exactly. Um, for, in this, in this uh, story, he changed the ending, uh, is dramatically different. Uh, not necessarily in, like, like, vibe, but in events, it's different. So in the right. in the book, Barry and Bullington don't do it. Okay. His downfall more comes from like his his downfall with Bullington is he sends Bullington to the continent, uh, to oh. to fight in uh, fight in the war on the continent, um, and everyone sees this as him trying to get rid of Bullington, and that's kind of like, in effect, what takes place of him like beating up Bullington mm. in front of everybody, um, and. Instead of the duel, uh, I think Barry just falls into debt with his creditors, and he gets arrested, and he ends up in jail, and dies of alcoholism. But keeps both of his legs. I think he has two legs. Yes, in the okay. book, I think he ends the book on two legs. Interesting uh, fact is that uh, they actually they had to find a guy with one leg. I was wondering that was roughly, about that. that. It was roughly the same height as Ryan O'Neill. I and looked like him from behind. I was wondering how they did that. <laughs> I was staring at the stump, like trying to figure out how they were. Yeah, how... no, no, they they found him a, a one-legged body. Uh, that's, a, that's as much smarter than any of the things I was <laughs> dreaming of. Yeah. It's like, I guess if, they, if he held it at the right angle... And then they covered no, it. No, that, the that, is, that is a genuinely one-legged ah, man. But what about the front shot? Is he just like, well, is, that's just the angle. But the back I'm, shot is... I'm a... not sure. I'd have, to, I'd have to actually look at it. But yeah, they did They did actually cast a legless ah, guy. Okay. <laughs> well, that makes more sense. I mean, so let, that brings us to this the, uh, the next detail, which is the casting, which isn't like a large detail in this movie. I mean... No. I think... Actually, a lot of the people are just people who have previously been in... Stanley Kubrick movies. Yeah, because he likes working with people who understand his way of working, it seems. Yeah. I mean, which, I mean, fair enough. Like, no, that's, of course. That's not a that's fault. That's how you, uh... That's how you yeah. do good things. Um, uh, yeah, we kind of, we kind of, uh, uh, shat on, well, I more so than you, I think, but collectively, we kind of shat on Ryan O'Neill's performance, uh, last yeah. week, which I stand by to an extent. Okay. Um, but I, I rewatched the film again since, since then. Yeah. Um, and I feel better about his, his... You feel better about it. I okay. feel better about it. Did, did you also want to give him something? I think he deserves an award. <laughs> what? What does he, what does he deserve? The worst accent? I think he has the worst accent in Don't this movie. Don't point that thing at me! Okay, um... Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I can argue with that. He's American, uh, and he slips yeah, in and he's... out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, his... but yeah, like we were saying, he's. I think we said this in part one that he's 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 not necessarily the 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 person you would you would immediately pick for this role. Like this, he was famous before this. He was at the peak of his career. Um... He did the film Paper Moon just before that. I haven't seen that film. Um, okay. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the yeah. films he was in before this. This is and the only afterwards film. Afterwards, he was in A Bridge Too Far and The Driver. Right. Yeah, so again, he he, he was okay. Should we move down the list? <laughs> yeah, who is next? Uh, Marissa Berenson? 
yeah. Uh, so she was a she was a a, a a cover model for Vogue and Time Magazine, wasn't she? Um, yes. Had she done much acting? Uh, she was in Cabaret. Haven't seen that film either. <laughs> okay. Famous film. Haven't seen it either, actually. Oh yeah, that's right. Nineteen seventy-two. Oh yeah, that's Liza Minnelli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But she's. I think sh- she's good in this movie. It doesn't. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of lines, but that is kind of the point. Yeah. Like it demands a lot of modeling skills in the sense that, like, you have to convey yeah. a lot. With just your, she also has to wear some things that don't seem comfortable. (laughs) Oh yeah, like she must have had, like, clothing in that era looks uncomfortable. Period. But like women's clothing, her like some of the things she had to put on her head. Ugh, seems terrible. Yeah, it does not seem fun. And she, uh, when she was cast, she wasn't told what the film was that she was doing. Uh, she was just told that Stanley wanted her for a, a uh, 18th century costume piece. Mm. Um, and Stanley told her to stay out of the sun for a few months. Before yeah, oh, yeah. I, 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 she is really pale in this movie. She is she is creepily pale in this movie, Yeah, which is the okay, point. Okay, I'm sorry. I, ju- I just saw a quote on, uh, on her Wikipedia article. Yeah. Where she's talking about working with Stanley Kubrick. And what does it say? Well, this, this is this is she says. I liked him very much. He had a lot of dry humor, contrary to what many people think. They have this image of Stanley as a difficult ogre. He wasn't at all. And now here, you know, now here is the bit. Yeah, Did she he call was a perfectionist. perfectionist. <laughs> ah. <laughs> but every great director I've worked with has been a perfectionist. You have to be to make extraordinary films. No. <laughs> yeah, I know. Marissa, no! <laughs> and she was never cast again. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. Uh, God, I mean... I mean, those are the two biggest important... I think the other one, the guy who played um uh, uh, Bullington, is an interesting story. Because... Uh, yeah, he is a very interesting story, actually. And he will be mentioned in, I think, the next segment. Not the next episode next episode a little bit okay what is his yeah. name again leon vitali leon vitali yeah so so why he's interesting is not necessarily just because of his role in this film yeah. but obviously it's a pivotal role in this film but um the fact that basically after this film he became stanley's like assistant yeah and like he became his personal assistant and like casting director for his yeah. later films, it's just interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll talk a, lo- a little bit about him later, but like, yeah, he, he's he's definitely he's definitely still like very much involved with like uh, the like um, the Linden sort of whenever the all, all the business part of like because I mean obviously like you know there are still like Blu-rays and stuff that come out and stuff. So yeah, I almost called the sort of the Kubrick Estate the Linden Estate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so he, yeah, he's he's involved sort of with the estate and and doing the business things right, right now. Right. I think, yeah. But uh, I mean, I don't know if he still is, but he was very recently. Right. So okay, so uh, Stephen Burkhoff, we actually mentioned <laughs> previously. Uh, Hardy Krueger, 
I I don't know if we really have much to say about him in regards to this film. I thought he was really good in this film, but he is an interesting fellow. He's an interesting fellow, you say? Yeah. Um, Why? Uh, okay, so he was in World War II. Oh, really? On the German side. Oh, really? <laughs> and he was conscripted... Uh, and I don't actually know where this, uh, this, in, I, I, I don't want to, like, wade too heavily into this, because, uh, well, cause you... but apparently at, at some point he was ordered by his superiors to kill a group of American soldiers, and, and when he refused, he was sentenced to death for cowardice. Jesus Christ. But then apparently another SS officer... Stopped the order. He was 16 years old at the time. Yeah, 16 year old yeah. Kruger was ordered to kill Grubova. Wow. So apparently later he uh, he essentially deserted and uh, I guess defected to the other side. But yeah, and then after all this, he got his career started in Hollywood. So after Captain Potsdorf, <laughs> actual former Nazi. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a weird detail. Yeah. But I I mean like, you know, fucking uh historical events like they are part of real people's lives, right? Like Yeah. Um speaking so, of historical uh, events being part of real people's lives, I think it's Yes. I think it's time to move on to a certain segment. What what segment would that be? Would it be the Logical negation of <laughs> falsehood. I think, I think it might be. All right. What do we have today, Keaton? So let's talk about the Illuminati. No, I'm kidding. Oh, God, I'm really? Kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Are you going to talk about Scientology or QAnon? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, not about this the moon week. landing? No, God, no, not this week. Um, we could talk about the moon landing for one second. Essentially, there is a pervasive rumor that Stanley Kubrick faced the, faked the moon landing. Which is nonsense. Yeah, because has Stanley Kubrick? Yeah, we did mention this. Oh, on we the last did. Podcast. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, but had he done it, it would have looked a hell of a lot better. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's the point. Is it would have looked better? Um, <laughs> but that is that is not the truth for this episode. What is the truth? So, so last week, Jake, this truth hinges very much on you. Oh God, does it? Yeah. It Do does. I have to recall facts? No, no, no. Don't worry. You... Okay, well, can I get some water first? So last week, you made a little statement. Um, I made a statement. You made a little statement. Okay. <laughs> I'm concerned. I think I even actually cut it out of the podcast, but I, I'm referencing it still. I'm using it for this this truth. Did I say something incorrect? Uh, <laughs> well, let's put it this way. Barry. So Barry Lyndon, as we all know, Redmond Barry... Uh, is a veteran of the Seven Years' War. Yeah. He made a statement 
let's just say, okay. that this was an inconsequential war unless you lived on our continent. <laughs> okay. Um, I-, I said it's, it's not that important. Yeah, that's what I said. You said it's not that important. So, so this truth, we're going to explore why the Seven Years' War was relevant <laughs> besides to just those of us on this continent. Okay. So and 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 I think what I said was that the Seven Years' War is the reason why this podcast is in English and not French. <laughs> exactly what you said, um, which is true, which is true. An, uh, every European conflict <laughs> um, is so fucking complicated mm-hmm. that, as as you said, it's the reason that the podcast is in. English, not in French. So, assumedly, that that means that it's a it's a conflict between our good old friends, the English and the French. But as Barry Lyndon taught us, uh, Prussia is also. Oh, there are the Prussians in there as well. The Prussians are and the also, Austrians, and the Austrians are very important. And I would argue, in Europe, Prussia and Austria are far more important to the Seven Years' War than uh, England and France. So, hilariously, for a long time in the uh, in the early 18th century. Austria and England were were uh, 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 allies. Right. Conversely, uh, Prussia and France were allies early in the oh. in the 18th century. So then there's this event. It's known as the Diplomatic Revolution of oh, 1756. That's a, that's a interesting way of putting that. It is an interesting way of putting the fact that Prussia and Austria just fucking switched. <laughs> they switched sides. Yeah, they just switched sides. Okay. Uh, they were just like they they were just like actually I'm gonna go with England and actually I'm gonna go with France. Uh, so they switched sides. Is there a reason why, or is that too complicated? Presumably, there's a reason why. But like, is that too complicated to explain? This says it was triggered by a separation of interests. <laughs> okay, that's a interesting way. Yeah, it's it. it's really fucking complicated. But basically, uh, uh, Austria didn't think that. Britain had its best interests in mind anymore, and the same was true with Prussia. So they switched, and then Prussia invaded Austria, and that's what kicked the whole darn thing off. Okay. So, for example, of uh, 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 the major effects not to this continent. So, so you're saying in Europe? Okay. So Austria and Prussia came out of this war uh, all the better for it. Prussia particularly. This war established Prussia as like a major power in Europe. Um, and uh, uh, Frederick II became Frederick the Great from, uh, 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 not just from this, but this was one of the major events that boosted his reputation. And he reigned for 20 years after this war. And in fact, a few years later, there was another, Prussia had a, a later war where they kind of embarrassed themselves. Was it the Franco-Prussian War? Could have been. We, we won't, actually, I don't think it was. Wait, so it was a war between France and Prussia that wasn't that one? No, I don't think it was with France. It might have been the Franco-Prussian War. Sorry. There's a lot okay, of little, anyway. little conflicts here. They liked to fight a lot of wars back then. Yeah, there was a lot of fucking wars back then. It's, but In Europe, specifically. In Europe, yeah. But... The point is, like, right after the Seven Years' War, people were, like, enamored. They thought Prussia's military power was, like, on some next level of genius. So European military, like, academics from across Europe flocked to Prussia to try and figure out, to try and learn about their military might, which is hilarious because, again, they got totally smoked, like, 20 years later. Yeah, that's funny. In the Secondary War. (laughs) Now, 
Secondly, Jake. <laughs> okay. Would you tell the people of Saxony, the people who bore the brunt of the conflict between Austria and Prussia, whose towns were destroyed and looted, including Dresden, that the Seven Years' War wasn't relevant to them? Would you say that to them, Jake? Well, I mean... No, but I'm saying, like, I, I mean, I, I think I was specifically thinking about, like, what are the lasting impacts of this war, right? Um, well, let's talk about the lasting impacts of uh, the Spanish invasion of Portugal, okay. which was part of the Seven Years' War. Right. I mean, um, I guess they didn't succeed. No, they failed really fucking badly, actually. Yeah. Actually, I believe Portugal was also an ally with Britain, weren't they? I think they were, yeah. I um, yeah. they yeah they were they were allied with Great Britain and they were technically a belligerent, but I don't, they didn't send a, a, a troops to the to the right. But they were invaded by Spain. Um, okay. Who got spanked and <laughs> chased out, which was a huge embarrassment because I think like the 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 like. Uh, the 18th century evaluation of Spain versus Portugal, I think, was quite the opposite. Yeah, well, I mean, they were both declining empires at the time, weren't they? Um, Portugal had a huge heyday, but it was on the way down at that point. But yeah, right. Okay, so Spain wouldn't get their ass kicked until a couple couple decades later. Yeah. Spanish America War. <laughs> yes, another war. But I could go on if you want. But I'll spare you and the listeners a little bit more of the the extremely dry details of the seven Battle year war sequences of the seven yeah, years i tried really hard to like uh uh place the the forgotten battle which is like what people call the, i think that's what they call like the barry Lyndon, the battle in the movie right well i don't think it actually like i think the whole point is that it could could be it could be anything right yeah yeah well i was like like i i I was I was trying to to uh, uh. They said it was more of a skirmish. It's not recorded in any of the history books. Well, it's, yeah, it's not a real encounter. But I was trying to force it into a yeah. real encounter. Right. Okay. And then I realized it was going to be the most fucking boring thing ever. So then I did this, which is only a little bit less boring. <laughs> so um, before we move on, though, for the benefit of the people that don't live in North America or specifically Canada. Uh, should we maybe explain, like, why I was making that statement? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's other, the, the other name for the, the Seven Years' War is the French and Indian yeah. War. I believe in in school we were taught it as the Seven Years' War, but I, I believe in America they tend to say French and Indian War, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, but you, um, go ahead. Give us a... So what I learned in school, <laughs> at least... <laughs> So essentially, uh, the way it was taught to us was that the uh, it was a war between the French and the British, which I guess it was, but there were more parties involved. I don't think the Prussians were really involved. Oh, it was a war between um, the Prussians and the Austrians, and the French and the English were Anyway, just... so I figure, <laughs> like, England basically, you know, decided that, you know, because they were in a state of war, now would be a good time to invade the French colonies in North America. So opportunistic, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, at the time, uh, Canada and a large chunk of what is now the United States um, was under French control. Indeed. And so, what happened was the British invaded from their eastern colonies, which are now the United States. Indeed. And uh, after basically a big, long war, and there was a battle at 
the plains of Abraham, I think. Yep. Uh, and then Wolf the, died, the, and there's a painting yeah, of it. There's a painting of it. Uh, the British captured Quebec City, and basically that was it. The war here, because I mean, from what I gather, like that didn't decide the war. <laughs> <laughs> no. Like that. That that's basically, and then I believe France. Uh, after all the treaties were signed, France ended up losing, uh, what is now Canada. That's what I think is, yeah. That, that is why basically in Canada we speak English and French. Exactly. Yes. It, the ultimate, like in North America, uh, New France lost their territory to, to the British and the Spanish except for they kept they 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 kept a lot of like interior sort of yeah, territory yeah, yeah. that they eventually sold to the United States but they they lost control of of yeah of they it. they lost control of uh of their territory yep but there is your uh, uh with a grain of salt because this is a movie podcast and we are not yeah this is a movie podcast that I'm literally just recalling what I learned yeah, <laughs> yeah. history yeah class. and i read uh, like a few articles earlier today so, yeah. <laughs> so, so we are not. We're not. There, if there's some, uh, some, uh, if you picked up some blatantly uh, in incorrect statements, please send us an email and uh, set us straight. Yes, please do. Set us straight, and we'll 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 be happy to correct the record on that one. But yeah, I think I think that's the end of our uh, truth segment. Um. So. Uh, I was wondering, or I, we were sort of wondering out loud, I think, some certain things about this movie. Yeah. And, uh, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe we could, with the aid of, of some mathematics, sort of sort things out, oh, you know what I mean? fuck yes. Does that mean what I think And so does? I was thinking, you know... Like, I was thinking, like, what if we had some kind of system? Yes. Some kind of system for, like, analyzing cinema. Wow. You know? What a... And, like, to get to the real truth behind behind this thing. Like, to strip away all the bullshit, wow. you know what I mean? Yeah. That's moving sentiment, dude. <laughs> it's really moving. Like, <laughs> like if you could use, use numbers to tell you the truth... <laughs> that be <laughs> so this segment is a segment we like to call cinematrics yes it shows up every once in a while whenever we have something interesting to point out about this film something worth metricing. and i'm i'm gonna do the math sorry i need to i have to grab my other computer because there's so much math <laughs> uh let me just open up my calculator here first because i'm going to calculate some things in real time for us Fuck. oh in real time wow yes in real time okay so 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 we had wondered aloud how many times in this movie do they say satisfaction <laughs> <laughs> did you find out exactly how many times well i happened to get myself a copy of the script <laughs> oh look at you go <laughs> and I found out that 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 
The number of times they say satisfaction is not even the most interesting part about this. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay, go on. <laughs> okay. Is that Okay, so in the in the version of the film that made it to the screen. Yeah. The word satisfaction in that way is said 10 times. Satisfaction is said 10 times. Okay, that's a lot. The word satisfied <laughs> uh-huh. is said two times. So we're at a total of 12 in the, in the satisfying, etc. department. And the word satisfy is said three times. So 15 total. Yes. And I believe if I do the math, that works. Uh, wait, sorry. Uh, Doing the math. One second. All right. I'm punching the numbers. I, I somehow uh, hoped that this would be smoother, but it is not. That is 0. 0.081 satisfactions per minute. 0. <laughs> 0. 0.81. 0. 0.081. 0. 0.081. So almost 0. 0.1. So we could round that up to 0. 0.1. Yeah, we could round that up to 0. 0.1. That is a satisfaction every 10 minutes. That is... <laughs> Uh wait, let me let me actually find out how many minutes per satisfaction. Um so that would be three one hundred That is twelve point that is every twelve and a half minutes there is a satisfaction in this movie. <laughs> there is some form of satisfaction or another. <laughs> That's so good. Oh my god. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you know that? <laughs> That's not even the most interesting part about what this. What is the most interesting part? Is that I found another copy of the script. <laughs> another, like an earlier version? An earlier version from 1973. And actually, you know, this is from the bits that I read. A lot of the same bits were in there. Okay. But, but an interesting thing is that the word satisfaction yeah. is used only three times. What? The word satisfied is used another three times. Right, six. So, and the word satisfy is twice, used twice. And we have another one. We have satisfying, which Whoa. is introduced and that is used one time. So, so what I think, I think when, when Stanley wrote the first draft of the script, he wasn't satisfied. <laughs> that much no, satisfaction. Clearly, yeah, how could you be satisfied with only seven satisfactions? You need at least 15 and, satisfactions and, to be satisfied. And so, 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 but we also lost a satisfied, but we gained many satisfactions. <laughs> so let me, let me punch that, let me punch that up so yeah. we can see how yeah, many, yeah. uh, let me put this into my calculator here. Mm -hmm. So that is nine total satisfying words. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I don't actually know. How long? It would be impossible for me to estimate how long this version of the movie would be, but I'm going to assume that it's also going to be 185 minutes. Yeah, just just for the sake of argument. So that is 0 0.048 satisfactions per minute, so almost half. That's that's almost negligible amount of satisfaction. That you... And so uh, that would be a satisfaction every 20 and a half minutes that how could there in this this film's about satisfaction how could how could there only be one in every 20 
minutes. That's nonsense. No, no, no. It's good. He he did the right, made the right call by bumping okay, up the size I, I also, factions. I just realized I misquoted uh, the number here that I calculated. I said 12 and a half minutes per satisfaction, in the, in the but it's actually 12 and a third. Sorry. My mistake. Oh, 12 and a third. God. My dude. 12 and a th- every 12 and a third minutes, there is a satisfaction. So every... So actually faster. Less time the satisfaction density is the satisfaction density quotient (laughs) (laughs) satisfaction density is higher in the new in the later script as it should be it's more satisfying every 12 minutes and 20 seconds you get satisfied in this film however i don't think that's the only way to break it up no i'm sure there's other ways because okay see, see here's how we how we could do this okay so there are also duels in this movie right yeah there's a couple now, duels. now because a duel is all about satisfaction well you you duel to get satisfied yeah exactly <laughs> so but my question is how many duels are there in this movie how many from duels? my count i count about four let me think do you count that about right there's the first duel with barry linden's father there's Barry Lyndon's own duel with C- C- Captain Quinn. There's mm-hmm. Barry Lyndon's duel with the villain guy whose name I escaped. Lord Ludd. Lord Ludd. Played by Stephen Burkhoff. Played by Stephen. The sword duel. Played by Stephen. Sword duel. Yeah, it's a sword duel. But a duel mm-hmm. nonetheless. And then there's the final duel with Bullington. Yes. So four duels. There is actually also a duel that does not occur, but is spoken about. Ah, wait. And some of these satisfactions are in relation to that. Which duel is that? Okay, so there's this prince that plays cards with uh, the Chevalier. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right before he's about to, yeah. And so then he's like, does he intend to, to, uh, does he, to, t- uh, t- 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 does he intend to get satisfaction? Does he intend to, yeah, <laughs> to seek satisfaction, to yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my question is, should we count that? even though it didn't happen because some of the satisfactions are explicitly related to that. Uh, I think the discussion of potential st- satisfaction... Or do we take those satisfactions but roll them over and then just use a smaller number of duels? Cause we I, think, I think they're, they still count to the satisfaction debate, but I don't think... But do, does, do we count that duel? No, I don't think that duel counts. Because it's, a, okay. it's just a potential So we're still duel. going with... With four duels. That means that there are three and three-quarter satisfactions per duel. Three and three-quarter satisfactions. So almost four satisfactions per duel. Which, you know, would make sense if you're doing, like, you know, three rounds or whatever. I, I mean, know, that's... You know, you that's three, and then maybe one at the end if somebody's satisfied. That's huge. That's a huge amount of satisfactions per duel considering there's only two participants in a duel. Well, and and presumably all you all you need to be is satisfied. You once, only need one satisfaction. And over. So, yeah. are you saying there's superfluous satisfaction in this film? There is more satisfaction than necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a, in another sense, there's almost no satisfaction in this film. Yeah, I mean, I guess Bullington gets satisfaction. I suppose that's true. Bullington's the only one. <laughs> I it's, at the end of this film, he's the only satisfied person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that was sick. That's a so. That's all I have. That's sick. For today. That's absolutely fantastic. Cinemetric section. I am satisfied fully. You better be satisfied. <laughs> I, I request no duel from you, sir. 
All right. Uh, I think that's it for uh, the uh, podcast. That's it for uh, part two. What are we talking about next week? Um, well, yeah. Well, tomorrow, ne- next week, we're going to talk about mostly the production that's so because we've we spent a lot of time talking about pre-production and various things not actually related to this movie um which you know sorry um yeah um but we'll talk a lot about this movie next week and we will have yeah we'll have more stuff and more segments and uh and yes, a lot of interesting stories. I think a lot of just cool anecdotes. Uh, I think yeah, a lot of we're getting to we're getting to the good stuff next week. I, th- I yeah, I think I, I I think you shall be satisfied. I think so indeed. <laughs> uh, but don't go demanding satisfaction. <laughs> oh please, yeah, 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 yeah. Again, if you demand so, satisfaction, um, NHL ninety four. That is our means of doing so. Yeah. So before we um we head out, um. We normally, in the last couple episodes, we've been shouting out uh, people who listen to our podcast. Uh, yes. I want to shout out people who listen to our podcast in the city of Toronto. Oh, fuck yeah. Wow. Because uh, this has not happened yet. Uh, it may or may not be happening uh while this podcast is being uploaded, but... Uh, oh, yeah, that is true. The Toronto Maple Leafs, Toronto Maple Leafs are... Uh, are about to go into a very hardcore series. Absolutely, yes. The Montreal Canadiens. Yep. And, and we have to get that karmic I, energy out there any way possible. We gotta get that energy going. So, like, you know, we love all of you who listen to our podcast from Toronto. Go Leafs, go. Go Leafs, go. And screw the halves. Uh, <laughs> we, we also love our Montreal listeners. Uh, we, we, like, we, we like you, we just hate your team. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so we'll be back next week. We might have to do like a a little. We'll, we might have to address the game. I don't know. If it ends, if if we don't get satisfaction. Yeah. If there's no, if it doesn't end with satisfaction, we might have to address it. We might have to seek some from from the Habs fans. But otherwise, no. Yeah, we might have to seek some into NHL '94. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking to you, Jay Baruchel. 